0: We're in the midst of a series focused on the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you who may be just joining us, it's important to know that the Sermon on the Mount is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God, but rather the Sermon on the Mount is telling you who you become by God's grace when God's power and presence come into your life. Now, I said at the outset that Jesus. Delivered the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, but he expected the crowds to look on and listen in. And therefore, the question for all of us, regardless of whatever our particular background or perspective may be, is what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus? Now, the word disciple means learner. So, to be a follower of Jesus means that you become an apprentice, a student. Of Jesus's life and message until his life becomes your own and in the particular passage that is before us today Jesus leads us through the school of prayer he introduces what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer John Cassius led a chapel service for the Chicago Bears back in the 1980s when they won the Super Bowl I remember this team well because I was eight years old and I was living in Chicago at the time. So apparently during this chapel talk, coach Mike Dicka said that he wanted to give a little pep talk to the team. And then he asked William Perry, the refrigerator, to lead the team by saying the Lord's Prayer. Now the brash quarterback, Jim McMahon, apparently was sitting next to the chaplain. And he punches him on the arm and he says, there's no way the fridge, knows the Lord's Prayer. And as the chaplain looks at William Perry, he sees he looks a little nervous now that Dicka has asked him to lead, and he's starting to sweat. And so Jim McMahon says, I bet you 50 bucks the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. The chaplain thinks to himself, it's a little odd to bet on the Lord's Prayer, but okay. So Mike Dicka finishes the pep talk, and then he nods to William Perry to lead the prayer, and he begins by saying... Now I lay me down to sleep. (laughs) I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the chaplain feels Jim McMahon tapping him on his shoulder, and then he hands him 50 bucks. And he says, I thought for sure that the fridge didn't know the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Well, if you don't know the Lord's Prayer, don't worry. You've come to the right place. We're going to take a look and see what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. Now, last week, we read Jesus' words about how our Heavenly Father sees us in secret. The problem is that while he can see us in secret, we can't see him. Our Heavenly Father is unseen, and that often makes him feel unreal, unreal. How do we carry on a conversation, let alone a relationship, with someone that we can never see? Well, let me make a disclaimer at the very outset of this sermon. If prayer comes easily to you, if it's something you do naturally and spontaneously and all the time, if you never struggle with prayer, if it never seems as if you're speaking to a wall, if you're never dissatisfied with your prayer life, if your thoughts never wander, if you're never confused about how prayer works or if prayer works, well then let me just tell you, this message is not for you. This message is for the rest of us who find prayer hard. Now right smack dab, in the middle of the greatest sermon ever told, Jesus offers the greatest prayer ever uttered. This may very well be the most prayed prayer in the entire history of human civilization. This prayer has been prayed by more people in more languages, in more countries and continents, across more cultures. And civilizations year after year, century after century, for the last 2,000 years since Jesus first introduced it. This is the world's greatest prayer. So, if you want to know how to pray, well, then you have to learn from the Master Jesus himself. So, let's see what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. So, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, I'd like us to consider three questions this morning three foundational questions. To whom should we pray? How should we pray and why should we pray? So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Our passage is printed on page 811 in the Pew Bible. You'll also find it printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses this is God's word It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray by your grace that the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that Jesus' words might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Question number one, to whom should we pray? Well, the first thing we should pay attention to is the detail we are most likely to take for granted because we're overly familiar with this prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father in heaven. Now, we discussed last week how it's typical to think of us as God's children because we are God's offspring, he's the creator of the universe, and though it is true that in the Old Testament God was known as the father of Israel, nevertheless, to know God as your father, your heavenly father, is the distinctive privilege of the Christian. No one before Jesus would have dared address God in such a personal and intimate way as to call him father, even Abba father, Papa, Dada. And Jesus only prayed To God as his father and he teaches us likewise to pray to God as our father our father In heaven. So first and foremost, we need to see that God is a person if God is our heavenly father Then God is a person now. He's far more Than a person, but he's not less And what that shows us is that God is not some mind beyond the universe or a mere life force but he's a person, and therefore we can relate to him like we would talk to anybody else. But God is not only a person, God is a father. And so I want us to think through some of the implications of that. I tend to think that most of us think of God not so much as our heavenly father, but as our spiritual employer. And think of the difference between a father and an employer in terms of the nature of the relationship, the ongoing status, and the way you might communicate with a father versus an employer. First of all, consider the nature of the relationship. Let's say a company is experiencing growth and they want to expand in new areas. And so they create a job and post the position and you apply for the job. You send in your application, you submit your resume, and then you come in for the interview and you present your qualifications and your experience and you land the job because you've got everything they're looking for. You're the perfect candidate. You've got all the right credentials and qualifications. Now, what is that relationship? That's a relationship based on merit. You earned it. You applied for the job, you earned it, you got it. But that's not how it works in a family. See, whether you're born into a family biologically or you're adopted into the family, either way, you didn't apply for the position. It's not a relationship based on merit, it's a relationship based on grace. And you see, that's the message of the gospel. God adopts us into, our, into his family, and it's not because we are qualified. In fact, we've actually disqualified ourselves to be part of God's family through our spiritual rebellion and failure, and yet Jesus lived and died and rose again for us so that we might be adopted into God's family despite who we are and despite everything we've ever done. So the heart of the gospel is God doesn't love you because you're qualified but rather God qualifies you because he loves you. God qualifies you for his family because he loves you. And what about then the ongoing status between these two relationships? Well, in a company, your ongoing status is dependent upon your performance. So if you work hard and if you do a good job, you will be rewarded. You'll get paid. And if the company makes a profit, maybe you'll get a raise or a promotion. But if you slack off, Or if you consistently underperform, despite all attempts to help you improve, well, what's going to happen? They're going to let you go. But that's not the way it works in a family. Now, of course, you can cause your parents' grief. You can break your parents' hearts. But you can never lose your position as your parents' son or daughter. Now, yes, of course, they could disown you. They could cut you off financially, but that doesn't change the fact that you will always be your parents' son or daughter. That can't change, and that's especially true when it comes to our relationship with God. Of course, we can do horrible things that would displease our Heavenly Father and break His heart. We can offend him, but we could never lose our position. We didn't do anything to gain our position in God's family, and therefore we can't lose it. It's a gift of his grace. And so no matter how well or poorly you perform, your status in God's family is fixed. It doesn't fluctuate or change. You will always be his beloved son or his beloved daughter because it's not about you. It doesn't depend upon you. It depends on, upon what Jesus has done for you. And so how do you then communicate with an employer versus a father well in a company if you need to talk you might need to fight to find time on your boss's calendar maybe you have to work through some kind of conflict or you need help solving a particular problem and so when you meet with your boss you might need to make a case you got to put your best foot forward you got to make a case well, I need more time or I need more people or I need more resources in order to get this job done and there may be warmth, there may be friendship in that relationship, of course. But ultimately, it's a transactional relationship. It's, it's quid pro quo. If you help me, I'll help you. If you help, if you help me, I'll help you. It's, it, it, it's a transactional relationship, but that's not the way it works in a family. If the only time you ever talk to your parents is because you need more money, it's a problem. <laughs> If all you ever wanna do is talk to your parents to get the keys to the car, it's a problem. So if you love someone, you want to spend time together. It's about the relationship, it's not about a transaction. You want to tell the other person how much you love and admire them. You, you wanna grow in your relationship, you wanna share your thoughts and your feelings, you wanna share your hopes and your dreams, as well as your worries and your anxieties. And so that's how we should approach God in prayer. Prayer is not about getting things from God, it's about getting God. Prayer is not about getting things from God, it's about getting God. You just want to be in his presence. You want to have a sense of his love on your heart. You want to grow in your intimacy with him. If you don't know God as your heavenly father in that way, well then you're just treating God like a spiritual employer, not your heavenly father. Our relationship with God is not transactional. It's a relationship. It's a a relationship of love. We want to express our admiration to to him for who he is. We want to express our devotion. And if we only pray when we need something, we're treating God like an employer. If if we only send off flare, flare gun prayers, do you know what I'm talking about? You know, you send off a flare when you're really in trouble, a distress signal, you really need help. If that's the only time you pray, you're treating God like an employer, not a father. Or if you only pray when you're at church, if you only pray on formal, official occasions, well then again, you're, you're, you're just treating God like an employer, not a father. So the first question is, to whom should we pray? And we pray not to a life force, not to the mind behind the universe, not to a mere employer, but to our heavenly father. But then the second question we need to ask ourselves is, how, how should we pray? And that's precisely the reason why Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer. In the parallel passage in Luke 11, where Jesus also issues the Lord's Prayer, his disciples come up to him and say, teach us how to pray. So if you don't know how to pray, guess what? You're in good company, neither did the disciples. So Jesus introduces the Lord's prayer in both of these places, in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew 6, but he introduces the Lord's prayer in two slightly different ways. See, in Luke chapter 11, he says, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. But here in Matthew 6, Jesus says, pray then like this. So you see, on the one hand, when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, we can pray it as it's written. We can imitate the very words of Jesus. We can use the exact same words. When you pray, say. But on the other hand, the Lord's Prayer provides us with a framework. It provides us with a model for all of our praying. And that's why Jesus says, pray then like this. So not only can we pray it as it's written, and we do, we sing it here. But we can also use it as the framework for all of our praying. So what is the framework that Jesus is offering? You could basically take the Lord's Prayer and divide it into two halves. And the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer concern God. And the second set of three uh, uh, petitions concern us. And what Jesus is teaching us there is that when we pray, we should pray first and foremost for God's glory and then secondarily and only secondarily, we pray for our good and the two go together and the order is important. We pray first and foremost for God's glory and then secondarily for our good. So first of all, we're supposed to pray for God's glory. The first three petitions are concerned with God, with his name, his kingdom and his will. So first we pray for God's name, hallowed be your name. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to hallow God's name? What is God's name? Well, God's name is not merely a word, but rather His name represents his person. That's true of all of us. Our name represents who we are. So God's name represents his character, his activity, his reputation, everything that he has revealed himself to be. But why do we pray that his name would be hallowed? His name is already holy. His name is already set apart. There's no one like him in the universe. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking that God's name, his reputation, would be treated as holy, that he would get the honor and the respect that he so richly deserves, that the fame of his name would be spread throughout the world, that everyone everywhere would know who he is and give him the reverence that is due to him. So we pray that his name would be hallowed, but that's not all. We also pray that his kingdom would come. Now, God's kingdom represents his loving and gracious rule over all things. And this was the very heart of Jesus' message. He announced the gospel of the kingdom. And he said that the moment that all of human history has been waiting for is finally here. The moment that all of creation has been waiting on tiptoe to see has happened. God's kingdom has come. It's drawn near, it's arrived. The rule of God is now confronting you as a present reality. So you see, God's kingdom is wherever God is king. It's where his kingship is acknowledged. It's where his people are rescued. It's where evil is subdued. It's where his ways are followed. And Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. It's really here, now. It's already here, and yet it has not yet been consummated. And so when we pray that God's kingdom would come, we're praying that he would bring his kingdom to bear on this world fully and finally until he makes all things new. But we not only pray for his kingdom, we also pray for God's will, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will represents God's purpose. And when you realize that, then you understand that to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven are just two ways of saying the same thing. We're praying that, that, that God's kingdom would be brought to bear, that his purpose would be brought to bear on this world as it is in heaven. So God's kingdom is where his will is done, where what he says goes. Now, when you put it like that, you realize that everybody has a name, everybody has a kingdom, everybody has a will. And so the real question is, whose name are you living for? Whose kingdom are you living in? And whose will are you pursuing? Yours or God's? See, Jesus is is teaching us that we need to to resist the pressure that we're constantly under to conform to the self-centeredness of our culture. We're under constant pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of our culture. I mean, just think about it. Let's be honest for a minute. We want to protect our own little name. We want to see our name recognized, our name in lights. We want to get the credit for who we are and what we've done. We want everybody to know it. And we want to protect our reputation, especially when it's attacked. So we want to protect our little name and we want to build our own little kingdom. We want to see our little kingdom come. We want to build our little empires. We want to expand our sphere of influence. We want to create our own little fiefdoms and we want our will to be done. We want to see our purpose, our purposes fulfilled so that whatever we say goes. Right? So whose name are you really living for? Whose kingdom are you really living in? Whose will are you really pursuing? We're far more like the world out there than we would care to admit, but though that may be the way it is out there, that's not the way it can be in here within his kingdom. And so Jesus is, is turning everything upside down, or perhaps you might say he's turning everything right side up, and he's teaching us to make God's name, God's kingdom, God's will our top priority. We gotta put first things first. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will comes first. So let me just ask you a question. Let me give you a little test. Jesus divides this Lord's Prayer into two halves, and the first half is dedicated to God's glory, his name, his kingdom, and his will. So here's the test. When you pray, do you devote at least 50% of the time to pursuing God's glory, praying for his name, his kingdom, and his will, or for yourself? That's the test. But there is an appropriate place for praying for our good as well. So after expressing our burning concern for God's glory, we then express our utter dependence upon his grace by bringing our petitions for ourselves before God. And Jesus teaches us to pray for three things. He says, give us, forgive us, and deliver us. So first of all, he tells us that we should pray, give us, give us this day our daily bread. Now in most cultures, though not all, Bread is a basic staple food. It's necessary for survival. And so by asking for our bread, we're expressing our utter need on God for everything that's necessary for life. We're praying that he would give us just what we need. And notice that he's teaching us to pray for our necessities, not for our luxuries. And we pray, give us Not give me, but give us our daily bread, meaning that we're meant to pray not only for our own needs and our own concerns, but also for the needs and the concerns of others. And we do this on a daily basis. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, why does God do it this way? Why doesn't he let us store up his blessings or store up his provision for the future? Why does he always seem to only give us what we need just for that day and not that much more? Because this is how he often operates. God often operates on a need-to-know basis. He only tells us just enough to get through one day. He only provides us with just enough to get through one day. Why? Because he wants to keep us in that position of dependence upon him, utter dependence upon him, like a child with his or her parent because he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to depend on him. So we pray first, give us, but then secondly, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us. And here he likens sin to a debt. And that makes a certain degree of sense. If someone wrongs you, if someone really hurts you, that offense is like a debt. Because why? You feel like that person owes you. And so what do you do if you have a debt? It doesn't just disappear in thin air. If a debt has been created, there's only two options. You can either make the other person pay for what they've done, or you can pay the debt yourself. You absorb it yourself. You absorb the cost by forgiving it. You can't just shrug your shoulders and hope that it'll disappear. That doesn't happen with financial debts. It doesn't happen with relational debts either. There's only two options. Either you make the other person pay or you forgive. And so it makes sense that in light of all the offenses that we have committed against God, that we would ask that he would forgive us for those debts rather than holding them against us. So far, so good. But but then Jesus goes on to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then Jesus takes an extra minute to elaborate on this point in verses 14 and 15. But what are we supposed to make of this? At first glance, it seems as if Jesus is saying that we can earn God's forgiveness. In fact, we must earn his forgiveness through our ability to forgive others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But that can't be right, because that would be to throw the gospel in reverse— I told you moments ago that gospel is God doesn't love you because you're qualified, but he qualifies you because he loves you. He doesn't forgive you because you've forgiven others, but rather your ability to forgive is the sign that you have already received the forgiveness that you need from him in light of all the offenses that you've committed against him. You see, the problem is that when it comes to wrongdoing, we tend to be really lenient with ourselves but really harsh with others. Is this not true? When we've done something wrong, we think of all the extenuating circumstances of why it wasn't really our fault or we really weren't to blame and, and therefore whatever we did was excusable. But when other, other people have hurt us, do we, do we think about the extenuating cir- circumstances as leniently as we think of our own? No. No. We say, well, no, there's no excuse for what they've done. So we're lenient with ourselves, but we're very harsh towards others. So we minimize our own wrongdoing, but we exaggerate the wrongdoing of others. But Jesus says, no, no, no. If you recognize the magnitude of your offense against God and you see the lengths that he has gone to in order to forgive you, it softens your heart towards others. How could you possibly hold it against them? And so your capacity to be able to forgive others is based upon the degree to which you understand how much you have already been forgiven by God's grace. So our ability to forgive others is the sign that we've received his forgiveness. So forgive us as we forgive our own debtors. And then finally, he teaches us to pray, deliver us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But we got to be careful here when speaking about temptation. Sometimes we might wrongly assume that God tempts us. But no, that could never be the case. James chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that no one should ever say I'm being tempted by God because God tempts no one. And yet it is true that we experience temptation in the fallen world in which we live, and God allows us to experience temptation and trial, but he never sends temptation. So then why do we pray? Well, we pray to avoid, not to avoid, we pray not to avoid temptation, but to overcome it. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that God is faithful. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we are tempted, he will always provide us with the way of escape. The question is, are we asking for it? Deliver us from the evil one. So when we experience temptation, we pray, deliver us. Deliver us from evil. So the first question, to whom do we pray? We pray to our Heavenly Father. The second question, how do we pray? Well, we pray for his glory and for our good. But the last question we need to ask ourselves is, why? Why should we pray? And that's an especially good question when you realize that right before Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer in verse 8, he tells us, Your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask him. But if that's true, if your heavenly father already knows what you need before you even ask, then why bother asking? Why bother praying? What's the whole point? And you see, I think when we ask the question why, most people fall into one of two traps, the trap of magic or the trap of fate. See, some people treat prayer like magic. They basically say, well, if you say the right words, in the right way, the right number of times, well, then you can twist God's arm and get him to do something for you that he wouldn't otherwise have done. You, you use prayer as a kind of incantation and you can manipulate and control God through your prayers in order to get whatever it is that you really want. But no, that can't be, the, that can't be right. God is sovereign. We don't coerce God to do what we want through our prayers, One of my favorite verses is Psalm 115, verse 3, where it says, Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he wants. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. God is sovereign. We can't manipulate and control him. But then if that's true, then... Some people fall in the opposite mistake of assuming a fatalistic attitude towards prayer. Well, if God is sovereign, if he knows the end from the beginning, if he's gonna do whatever he wants, if he's gonna do whatever he pleases, then there's no point in me praying because my prayer won't accomplish a thing. But no, that's not right either. So why do we pray? Well, I'll give you the answer. God calls us to pray Because God has chosen to move in response to our prayers. God calls us to pray because he has chosen to move in response to our prayers. Now, let me illustrate this for you. My son Luke gave me permission to share this story. But when he was a baby, I remember one morning sitting down at the breakfast table and I'm feeding him breakfast but he hasn't yet learned how to talk. And so I'm trying to teach him words and I'm also trying to teach him some very basic sign language. So I'm trying to teach him the word more and the sign for more, please. So if Luke made a utterance that was in the general realm of more, or if he put his hands together and it looked a little bit like the sign for more, then I gave him a Cheerio or a spoonful of yogurt. But if he didn't say more, if he didn't make the sign, I withheld the Cheerio. And I withheld the spoonful of yogurt. Now, why did I do that? Is it because I was a cruel parent? Is it because I was withholding something from him that he really needed? Or when he did say more and I gave it to him, was that because Luke was twisting my arm and manipulating me to Get me to do something I otherwise wasn't planning on doing? No. I only gave him the Cheerio or the spoonful of yogurt when he said more because I was teaching him to communicate with me. Because I wanted a relationship with him. And you see, this is what our Heavenly Father wants. He he wants us to know him. And so he calls us to pray, not because we can change his mind and get him to do something he wouldn't otherwise do, but because through our prayers, we understand how he's moving in the world. We understand his values, his priorities, his commitments. We have the opportunity to participate in his work in the world, but we would never know what he's really like. And we would never cultivate cultivate that intimacy of relationship until we pray. So there there are ways in which God is calling us to pray because he has chosen to move in response to our prayers. And do you know what that means? It means that there are some things that will never change in your life or in the world until you pray. There are some things that will never change in your life or in the world until you pray, but it's not because you're manipulating God, but rather it's because it's always been part of his plan. From before the beginning of time, he has decided that he would move in response to your prayers and so he's not going to do it until you pray. Now, I can't think of a greater motivation for prayer than that. There are some things that will never change in your life or in your world until you pray because he is just waiting. He's just waiting for you to ask. Now, how do I know that that that's true? I know that's true not only because Jesus teaches us how to pray, but he models prayer for us. Jesus modeled a life of prayer. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he practiced what he preached. Jesus was not obsessed with himself. He was focused on God's glory, on God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. In John chapter 12, Jesus is staring down the cross. He knows that he's going to have to give up his life for us. So how does he respond to that? Does he say, Father, save me from this hour? No, he says, this is the whole reason why I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He wants to see God's name, God's reputation lifted up and revered. In John 17, he says that he's made God's name known And then the night before his death, he prays, he prays for us. He prays that God would keep us in his name so that we might know his love for us. And Jesus was not committed to building his own kingdom or accomplishing his own will. No, in John 6, he says, I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in the garden of Gethsemane, in a moment of anguish, He famously prays, not my will, but yours be done. You see, he wasn't seeking his name, his kingdom, his will. He was seeking the name, the kingdom, and will of our Heavenly Father. And that is why he went through the horrible ordeal of torture and execution and death on a Roman cross. He did it all in order to reconcile us in relationship to God so that when we pray, We can pray, give us, forgive us, and deliver us. Give us everything that is necessary for this life and the next. Forgive us for all of our many offenses against our Heavenly Father and give us the power then to forgive others in in like manner. And then deliver us. (laughs) Deliver us from evil. You see, Jesus lived and died and rose again so that he could give us, forgive us, and deliver us. But that's not all. Even now, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He is praying for you. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is continually interceding on your behalf before the Heavenly Father so that you can know That when you pray, your Heavenly Father not only hears you, but he will respond. So pray. There are some things that will never change in your life or in this world until you pray because God has chosen to move in response to your prayers. So what are you waiting for? Let's get after it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have made it possible for us to relate to you, not as a spiritual employer, but as our Heavenly Father. And therefore, teach us to pray as Jesus modeled for us. Help us to be concerned first and foremost with your glory and secondarily with our good, trusting that you will do all that is necessary to make your name known and to give us everything that we need for this life and for the next. And therefore, give us the motivation to pray, knowing that you have chosen to move in response to our prayers. And therefore, our prayer really does change things. Prayer really does work. Convince us of those truths and help us to live in light of them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.